the trifecta of hormones, you've got oxytocin and endorphins. Oxytocin runs the labour. Endorphins nuke the pain. Without those two, you're screwed. You will not give birth that day. Without those two hormones absolutely coursing through your partner's bloodstream. The only thing that blocks those two wonder drugs is adrenaline. And the only thing that causes adrenaline is fear, irritation, annoyance. Fear is the big one. So if your partner is afraid, she's not going to be able to dilate and the pain of childbirth is going to be stronger. So it will be your fault if it's longer and harder than it needs to be. So you just have to make the room as cool and calm and comfortable as possible and that might mean batting some people away and just keeping things absolutely fabulous and calm. That is author, CEO and doula, Lucy Bloom. And this is episode 290 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. And welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This, this is episode 290 of the show. Uh, Lucy Bloom is on the show today. You can find her on Twitter at the Lucy Bloom. She's also there on Instagram or thelucybloom.com. Very good with her branding, let me tell you. More about Lucy in just a moment. What is this podcast? This podcast is real easy. It's just a conversation designed to help you make today a bit better than yesterday. Something in the next hour and a bit will make you go, oh, oh, that's it. You'll make that noise in your head, or if you're driving, oh, really loud. That's what we do. That's what we do here. Every single week we've been doing it. I'm gratefully for years now, since 2013, we've been doing this, and I'm grateful to bring you the show every single week. Who am I? I'm a, a sober, vegan, celiac TV host from Australia uh, called Osher. I'm a stepfather, a, a gymnasium heavyweight face maker. A, a dog poop bag rupture emergency experiencer, gum tree buyer, gum tree seller, an author and podcaster. And my name's Osha Ginsberg, and this is my show. So thanks for coming. Thanks very much to everybody that reached out about Friday's episode. Got deep, real deep. And um, I really appreciate you reaching out and um, just having a chat there. It's, it's nice to know that I'm not alone too. That's good. I'm really grateful to everybody that emailed. Thank you so, so much. Uh, and also a big thanks to those who rated and reviewed the show in iTunes. It really is the best thing you can do for us here at the show. Like, to be honest, no. The best thing you can do for us here at the show is to just tell someone else. Have you heard this? Yeah, that guy from the thing. Yeah, he did, he wrote it. Yeah, podcast. Yeah, hundreds of them. Should totally. There's this one with Kath Cashel. Oh, it's so good. Whatever it is you want to say to them. But that would be the best thing ever. If you, uh, if everyone got one extra person to listen this week, we'd double our downloads. I'm good at maths. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the, the, I guess a, a real great way for us to continue to get great guests is to, you know, we're starting to try and like aim for people who have publicists and things like that. So getting up on those iTunes charts really helps those people make their decisions about how they spend their precious press tour time. And um, it's somehow the iTunes charts, it's the ones they look at. So they look at our download numbers, but they also look at what you rate and what you say about the show. So to encourage you to rate and say things about the show more, I will read some out from the iTunes store. Um, I think it's a 
Apollo, I think is the name, uh, like an interesting best mate who tells it like it is. It's like having a chat with one of your best mates. He's got loads of interesting things to say. He's kind and funny, but he also is a straight shooter who doesn't hesitate to cover difficult or uncomfortable issues. Love this podcast. Thank you, Apollo. There's lots of ones in that, but thank you. Kerry T. Uh, so happy you make me happy. Thanks for your podcasts. Can't say enough. Great guests, great updates. Just love your honesty, how open you are and love it, that you just get it and manage it manage to keep it real. Go wash it, keep the podcast coming. Hope you feel the love from your podcast community. Smile off and be happy and keep being you. Thank you so much for that. It's very sweet of you, Kerry. And uh, Lucy has written, honest and kind. Hello, Washer. Thanks for a podcast full of honesty and a few cheeky name drops. It helps me to think consciously as I drive to and from work. I have a new job which involves driving a lot more. I can tell you, I am loving traffic because it takes me longer to get places and gives me longer to listen. I like that Osha learns from his guests and you can too. That's super dupes. Thanks, Lucy. Drive safe. And if you are going to send me a photo of what you're doing while you listen to this podcast, please pull over, put it in park before you take a photo driving. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So let me tell you about my guest today. Lucy Bloom is a CEO, author, doula, and a charity leader from Sydney, Australia. She's done so much, it's hard to squeeze it all into one intro, but I'll try. Uh, Yet what she shares in this conversation is an unflinching drive to make the world a better place, be it by teaching men how they can be present and supportive during the birth of their children, or helping charities from Cambodia to Ethiopia provide better outcomes for mothers and children struggling in those communities, or even inspiring others with her own story about how she overcame the adversity of a catastrophic motorcycle accident to go on to achieve all of those things that I just mentioned, as well as be a mother of three kids, Lucy is an absolute powerhouse. She's the author of two books, Cheers to Childbirth, and her latest is called Get the Girls Out. You can find more out about Lucy Bloom, thelucybloom.com or thelucybloom on Twitter and Instagram. Just a word, this conversation, Lucy spent a fair amount of time working um, with uh, helping women dealing with fistula in 
very, very, very poor communities around the world, particularly in Africa. So this conversation does contain some pretty graphic descriptions of things that can go very, very wrong in childbirth and conversations about where either mum or baby don't make it. So I wanted you to be aware of that, but it's okay. We come out fine on the other side. We're going to be good. Come to my kitchen table in our apartment in Bronte in Sydney for a cuppa and a chat with Lucy Bloom. Thank you for coming, Lucy. Thanks for having me. I'm really grateful you're here. Um, tell You don't live very far away. You live uh, two beaches over. That's right. No, one beach. Two beaches. Two beaches. Clavelli yeah. and then Coogee. Yeah. Um, are, you, are you from Sydney? Did you grow up here? Uh, I grew up in Sydney. I was born in Africa but grew up in Sydney and in the nor- on the North Shore. So go over the Harbour Bridge, keep driving till you're really sad. <laughs> Which part of Africa? <laughs> I was born in Joburg in a, like a country town outside of Joburg. Yeah. Um, and all my brothers and sisters were and then we moved to the UK and then we moved here because the UK was too cold. When did you get out of South Africa? Uh, 1979 we left. Hefty. Yeah, it was. So it would have been. And it was a horrible place to be. What did your parents tell you about South Africa at that time? Um, you would have been little. I was little. I was five when we left. And all I understood was that if we didn't leave, my brothers would have to go into the army. And that was, that was the reason we were told that we were leaving South Africa, was to get away from compulsory army service. And at the time they were sending... Um, boys into Angola. So that was something we wanted to avoid. And the the apartheid situation didn't make sense to me as a five-year-old. And it was only when I was a teenager that I really understood what we had left behind. Right. Yeah. Uh, I've had a number of uh, ex-South Africans on to have a chat and they all they all describe how equally horrible, well, it could never be equal, obviously, but how how also horrible apartheid was for the white South Africans who didn't agree with it. Yeah, if you didn't agree with it, it was a horrible, horrible place to live. If you did agree with it, it facilitated your lifestyle quite nicely. I wonder, I was wondering about that the other day, like in the 70s, did like full on white supremacists just go, that I can't wait to live the dream, I'm (laughs) immigrating, here I go, I'm moving to South Africa. It was actually 1948 that apartheid was institutionalised, like um, legislated. Yeah. So it became, it was... It was lifestyle long before that, but it became law in 48. So yeah. my parents were eight years old when it became just how it just became law. But, you know, by the 70s, it was well and truly there were only one white person for every nine Africans in South Africa, but they were the ruling class. And everything from buses to toilets to cafes, everything was segregated. Mm. You couldn't walk in the same doorways as each other. It was that segregated. And the worst thing from a social level was the distances that um, black people had to travel to work. So the white people got to live in the nice areas and the black people were moved into townships and then they would be on a bus for four hours a day, like four hours each way. So that's where they do all their sleeping is on the bus, turn around, deal with their kids, come back to work. Just socially devastating. And quite an oppressive regime. I've, I've spoken with a – he's an out and proud gay man, um, but he spoke about the, the secret police, you know, persecuting homosexuals, white homosexuals. In, in and Saturday. people would just vanish and there would be nothing ever spoken of it ever <sighs> again. The disappearing yeah. stuff is harrowing. No Royal Commission, no, no trial, no – what happened to him? Yeah, it's all very – and no one wants to say anything lest yeah. they disappear too. But – 
And yet, isn't it just so extraordinary that in our lifetime, and I've been to South Africa twice now, isn't it extraordinary that in our lifetime a country can go from that, it's not perfect now, but from that to what it is now? Is it unbelievable? Yeah, it's a huge step. I actually find it more incredulous that it went the other way in the first place, that it became, that apartheid became law the way it did. Regardless of sanctions and everything that happened to South Africa as a result, I still can't believe it got to that point where it was legislated that way. Swinging back the other way seems like a more natural correction of the way society should live, so it's less amazing to me than... Yeah, the, okay, so the living a life where of empathy and compassion seems to be the more just general you're born with it, humanness, than living a life of oppression. Yeah, uh, and look, in Africa there are always so many tribes living in one area that everyone learns to learns to live with each other in yeah. a way that the white man never did when he arrived in, in Africa. Yeah. So, so many overlapping tribes had always lived together. Yeah. Uh, so it was more going back to the way those tribes knew how to live and undoing all those crazy laws. And so when you got to the UK, what what was the thing that you noticed? It was immediately different. Um, the, the maids were white <laughs> and, and it snowed all the time, so I'd never, ever noticed snow. But my mum noticed that we watched lots of TV and we suddenly became an indoor family because it was England. And so within three years, my folks were like, this isn't really the right lifestyle for us. So dad jumped on a plane and went to a few places. He went to Japan. He went to the southern states of America. What was his gig? What was he doing? Um, dad is an engineer and he was in Africa. He worked for De Beers, the big diamond mine in uh -huh. the centre of South Africa. And he worked out how to get the diamonds out of the rough so the, the sort of rubbish of the mine, he worked out the centrifugal force that could pull the diamonds out and they made a mozza out of all these dump sites for De Beers. But when we were in um, the UK, he moved into locomotives. Mm -hmm. So anything to do with choo-choo trains makes my dad very happy. Yeah. And he, so he went on a trip. He went to the southern states of America, Japan, and the last place he visited was Sydney. And when he got to Sydney, he got here in springtime and he just said, this is it. This is, this is Africa without the beheadings. It's, it's oh, the, my God. <laughs> yeah, it's the African... Um, the, the same longitude. Same latitude. Well, well latitude, yeah. that's the one. And fabulous lifestyle without the awful violence and segregation and race issues. Well, those things did ha ha do happen here. <laughs> They are nothing like South Africa. Nothing though. like South Africa. Yeah. It's you know, Bahasaid was based on Queensland's racial separation laws, so that, that stuff wow. that stuff is you know has its origins and and Queensland and and Australia most definitely have. Yeah, but I, I, I get policy. what your dad was talking about. I certainly get what your dad was talking about. So when you got to Australia, what you would have been ten? Yeah, I was eight All right. when we got here. And we took, uh, I had six months off school. and we, I know. And we lived uh, in a little place on the northern beaches called Paradise Beach. And we honestly thought we had moved to paradise. It was called Paradise Beach. We didn't have to go to school. The weather where, was perfect. Where is it? In the northern beaches? Uh, on Pittwater. Um, oh, so it's on the other side. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible up there. It was just you didn't have to go to school. No. You're in the water every day. Didn't start school till the following year. So we just sort of got to know, got our feet and sort of found out, you know, what Sydney was like and and then just grooved into it gently. And he started school the following year. Yeah. It's fab. 
It was great. So I didn't really go to school before then. I did a little bit, but I didn't go to school at all in South Africa. I went to school a little bit in the UK, but not a lot. And so I really only started school when we came to Australia. That's right. At eight, that's nine. That's rough. Yeah. When uh, Year two. That's tough. I was so, I was so behind. <laughs> I had no idea. So, funny little things like starting a school in Australia. I remember in the very first week someone said to me, what house are you in? And I had no idea what that meant. I was like, it's, it's a yellow house down the road. I didn't know. I had no idea what sporting houses and all that crazy crap meant. I didn't even know how to borrow a book from the library. And I remember going to the library and they, you know, this is how you borrow a book. And so I borrowed some books and I took them home and I enjoyed them and I read them and I took them back. And then a couple of weeks later, I start getting these nasty notes home because of my library books. And then I get hauled into the library and they said, you haven't returned your library books. I said, yes, I have. And I showed them I'd put them on the shelf. So I had just taken them straight back and whacked them on the shelf. I'm like, what's... Why, why is everyone so dishonest that you have to have this whole system with the books? <laughs> so, yeah, I was a bit of a country girl. Wow. <laughs> a bit clueless. Um, wow. Yeah, but I caught up. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, good, clearly. I mean, you know, you, you, you basically, if your career after school is anything to go by, you certainly <laughs> figured out how everything works. I did figure out school. Works. Yeah. What kind of kid were you at school? Were you the Lucy see me after class kind? <laughs> Yeah, I was a bit. Yeah. In primary school, I was just catching up. And also, I was trying to drop my Cockney accent. So when I went to the UK, I dropped my Saffir accent and picked up the local accent. And then when I came here, I did the same thing. And so I had to really quickly drop this annoying accent and sound like an Aussie. And then when I started high school, that's when I realised, yeah, I've actually got to knuckle down and do some stuff and actually mm. study. And uh, there was something very cool happened to me in my very first year of high school. I mucked around so much and I had this little gang of friends and the school realised oh, we weren't helping each other at all being in the same class. So they moved me out of an average type class into the top class. And I had to start the last term with a whole new group of kids and I hated it. I just sort of set up my little gang in my other class but I remember on that very first day looking at all these other girls, it was a girls' school, and looking at all these other girls and thinking, I'm just, I'm going to beat those mofos. I'm not going to let them be smarter than me just because they think they're in the, the top class. <laughs> and I'm just so glad that there was some kind of competitive gland got a poke when I was moved into that class. So it just made me work really hard just because I liked winning, just because I liked being top of the class. Um, and that probably saved my ass in lots of ways that I focused on study and I still mucked around like a lunatic and drove my teachers mad. But, um, but you were competitive I enough. I was competitive enough to actually want to smash it yeah. and do well. Yeah. Jeez like that. Jeez. She works really hard. Like I will go into her room thinking I'm going to just – she'll just be on her phone. But, yeah, she's on her phone with some unbelievably difficult maths homework in front of her. <laughs> You know, and no one said, hey, it's work time. She's just, just driven. She's so driven to do it. Yeah. She worked really hard. We did parent-teacher last night. Uh, she's 15. We did parent-teacher last night. Everyone's like, man, she works really hard. Unreal. And I, you know, so and you, I, I, you can't teach that. No. That little, that work hard no. thing that makes you go, yes. And nor the yeah. competitiveness because she plays a lot of sport as well. And when she gets going, you know, you see the, the whites of her eyes. It's like, well, look out, kid in front of her. <laughs> Here it comes. <laughs> Unreal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she plays water polo, which is, uh, how shall I put it, 
An aggressive game. Yeah, yeah, that's the word that was coming to my mind. It's not a gentle sport, that one. No, it is not a gentle sport. Yeah. And um, particularly uh, we are very fortunate to be able to send it to a, a, a girls' school uh, and the kind of girls' schools that she plays are like where, you know, she's at a, shall we say, middle range kind of girls' school, but there's ones that, you know, the school fees, there's another, yeah. there's another zero at the back of them, you yeah. know. And so it's that, I don't know, I grew up, when I grew up and so there was a lot of, you know, kids from the wrong side of tracks movies, you know, where yeah, the yeah. total school rivalries. Oh mate. Thing. And so yeah. they go they go to the school where, you know, it's the you know, there's a there's a lift in the gymnasium and, you know, <laughs> like all that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. And you know, there's a there's a porter and things yeah. like that. And and they just wallop them in the pool. You know, part of me's like, yeah. <laughs> It's kind of fun. Stick that to your porter. Oh uh, no, it's kind of fun. <laughs> so when did you get? A, when did you start getting the the the, the bug for um, you know what might come after school? Did you have a bit of a thing? How old were you uh, when you were like, oh okay, this isn't going to last forever. I'll be eighteen. So what am I going to do? Uh, when I left school, I thought I wanted to be a journalist and. Uh, a journalist or some or a visual communicator of some sort. Yeah. Yana Vent was really big. Uh, she, she was, was a, huge at the she time. She actually yeah. did it. When a current affairs shows were actually about current affairs, yeah. when they weren't just dodgy builders and let's make fun of brown people, they were. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah, they were actually like, hey, here's a serious thing going on in the parliament today. Here's what you should know about yeah. it. And Yana, who was very, very smart, very, very driven, very powerful, would not let anyone mess with her and smart. Smoking hot, uh, <laughs> with yeah, great was. hair, yeah. really great hair. Uh, she was on the TV every night. Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. inspiring. Taking people to task. Yeah, was inspiring. So I thought I wanted to be something like that. You yeah. And I always say you can't be what you can't see. So because I could see this strong woman in the public eye, that interested me. First of all, I went and worked as a jillaroo which was super fun. I just had a gap between school and uni and just went and rode horses downhill and where drove a tractor. You, where did you uh, go to Jillaroo School? Uh, I didn't go to Jillaroo School so oh. much. I was just thrown in at the deep end, oh, wow. worked on a property, and it was in Victoria, oh, country right. Victoria. Audrey did, did Jillarooing. Yeah. My Fijian wife was at Jillaroo for a while. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She went out past Tamworth to do it. Uh, unreal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was awesome. Yeah. What did you like about that? I, I just loved the break from being chained to a desk. I worked really hard for six years at school and I needed a break before I, I dived into academia again. And so I just I just loved not having to think too hard, just it being really physical. What kind of livestock? Um, it was cattle yeah. and hay and they bred racehorses. So we had really, really good horses to ride. No motorbikes or anything. It was all horseback. Wow. So, yeah, How it was long really you fun. It was only a few months before school and then uni started and I started a degree in visual communication and I only lasted four weeks. And I think the um, Jillarooing kind of ruined me for diving straight into university because I just had so much fun. It was so fun and so physical. And then were to the come, only, Were the only lady out there? No, there were two of us, yeah. me and a school friend. So same age. We turned 18 while we were out there. We just had the best fun. And then to come back to uni and to sit in a lecture hit theatre and discuss the theory of design was just too boring for words. I just, I just couldn't stick to it. So I dropped out. Uh, After four weeks yeah, in university. Only four weeks. I went, yeah. yeah, it's not for me. I can't do it. I'm dying here. But it's good you're out before Hex kicks in. That's that, good. I, I pulled out the day before Hex kicked in. I did in. that. <laughs> I did that. I, was, I, I did part-time, though, for six weeks, and I was like, yeah, I can't do this. Yeah, it sucked. It just sucked. 
And I was just really lucky to dive into a job in an ad agency and that set my path. So what were your folks like when you had the chat of like, I'm not going to go to university anymore? Well, I didn't have that kind of relationship with my parents. I needed to get permission. And I remember saying to my mum, I hate it. I had tears in my eyes and saying, I'm hating university. And she said, you know, it's your life. You know, you can drop out if you want. And I didn't know that it was my I didn't know anyone had handed me the keys to my life yet. <laughs> so I was still waiting for permission. And the second she said that, I went fabulous. And I trotted into uni the next day and with a big grin on my face, dropped out. So she kind of did that. She sort of handed it to me and went, it's, it's your life now. You get to choose. <laughs> Isn't that is interesting awesome. how I was thinking of maybe doing a segment on this podcast um, where I give people permission. Because uh, the greatest <laughs> the greatest breakthroughs in my life have happened when people have gone, I don't know, you just go ahead and make it. Yeah. I give, there we'll you go. It. By the power vested in me, <laughs> I grant you permission, you are now a television producer or you are yeah, now a right. podcaster or you are now an author. And I was at one point in my life not a podcaster. I was not a television producer nor was I an author. Yeah, And then right. someone, someone – because I didn't believe that I could be and then someone goes, I don't know, you're an author now. Off you now go. go and write your book. Yeah, cool, hey. And then, and then that's all – really, that's really all it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, if magic is just a spell, if it's just words, then those words are so powerful because yeah. it just flicks that switch Set in you your free. brain. Yeah. And it did – when your mother said that to you, you're like, oh, fuck, yeah, of course it is. Yeah, it was oh. hanging on my shoulders thinking that I couldn't drop out. Yeah. But she said I could, so I did. And I just needed that. I needed some time off. I always say when I'm Prime Minister, kids when they leave school will have to have at least two years where they're just working in primary industry. Don't dive straight into university. Go and actually work with your hands, dig holes, build fences, do that. It's the best fun. And, And then think about what you study next. But it also gives you an idea of what physical labour is. Yeah. And to appreciate physical labour and people who do physical labour. And when you look at a punnet of strawberries and you know how much work actually goes into getting that punnet of strawberries to your woolies in Coogee, (laughs) you really do appreciate it. Fuck, these strawberries are $5 each. No. (laughs) I'm going to put them in my fridge until they turn to slurry and then throw them away. I'm not even going to eat them. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of work that goes into that. Yeah, and fencing. I still look at fencing as just this thing of beauty because it's so much hard work to do a post hole, a proper post hole that's really nice and deep, the kind that, you know, that you see just sailing over hills in the countryside. They just take – they would take me a day to do two. And there's thousands. And there's thousands. And you just leave it all there and you, you go you, you go home for the night and you come back and all your gear's still there and you just keep going. <laughs> it's so hard. Kangaroos don't have opposable thumbs. They can't rip off your star pickets. Yeah, you that's know? right. That's exactly it. <laughs> yeah, hard, hard work. But yeah. really good fun too. Yeah. And when the sun goes down, this was, you know, before the internet. So when the sun goes down, there really wasn't much to do. And so we became really good at playing cards. Um, yeah, so you do other things rather than just look at your phone. Right. Yeah, Which, in the uh, olden days. And have conversations. <laughs> yeah. Heaven forbid. Yeah. Conversations. Yeah. So you're in the gap between I'm out of uni and when the – and, you know, I have a similar thing in my career when that window of opportunity just edged open. How did that window of opportunity to the ad agency ed- edge open? What was it path? I just did it the old-fashioned way. I literally wrote letters to every advertising agency, radio station, TV station, anywhere sound- that sounded cool to work. I sent them a letter. I typed them letters on paper, put them in envelopes and stuck them in the mail and I got a reply from one of them. 
that's all it took. Like, I think I sent about 50, 50 letters and one of them rang me and said, hey, come in for a typing test. So I went, okay. And I remember my boss said to me, you got that job because you could type fast and you could talk fast. And I was only 18 and I was a junior creative. So I moved around the agency wherever they needed me and just learnt the ropes. And we, still use that the, the things I learned in that job today. We, we got our breakthrough exactly the same way. Yeah, yeah. wrote letters. <laughs> wrote letters. <laughs> I wrote letters to everyone. Everyone just saying, I'll do anything. Yeah. Just let me in. All I want to do is get in. Yeah. I wonder what it was. I wonder if they just saw something in the language that you wrote that just yeah, said. Yeah, or the timing. We could go with someone like that around here. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I think it was probably timing that they needed someone at the same time as that letter landed. Yeah. And yeah. And so when you say you learn skills on that job that you still use today, yeah. what are we talking about? What kind of uh, Most of their clients were charities. Mm-hmm. So they handled the World Vision business for 25 years and developed the whole 40-hour famine and all those things that we sort of take for granted. Big. was all developed in those days. And I learnt, I learnt some of those rules, the rules of fundraising, copy and technique and list and client wrangling. I learned a huge amount there. Mm. Yeah. Particularly when you're doing that kind of stuff, you know, it's one thing to say there's 80,000 people starving on the border of this country that yeah. you've not heard of versus this is Jamal. Yeah. Jamal's really hungry. Yeah. Right? People will donate to the one story versus yeah, the, that's exactly. the tens of thousands because yeah. it's too overwhelming. Yeah. You know? They donate to a person rather than a statistic. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I learned all that and I learned how you have to make your communication look cheap so that it doesn't look like a charity is communicating in a really flashy way. So everything has to be sort of made to look a bit rough and ready, but it's quite contrived because you know the back end, you know what you're doing to make it look rough and ready. It's not rough and ready at all. It's just looking that way. It's all about perception and cost and, yeah. But I think my ad agency background is why I was such a successful charity CEO because I knew all that stuff. It became in-house. So we didn't have an ad agency. We did it all in-house. And those costs were were minimal. And when people, little old ladies would say to me, oh, this brochure is full colour and it's all printed fancy. It shouldn't be like that. I could say to her, that brochure costs seven cents. I knew my exact figures so that I could say, you know, well, that newsletter, we raise about $25,000 every time we send out that newsletter and the newsletter in your hand is costing about 11 cents. Yeah. Oh. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. How long were you at the agency before you held the call of the uh, Well, it didn't happen that smoothly. Wasn't a clear line? Life is never quite that smooth. I was only working for that agency for eight glorious months. Eight months, that's wow. all it was. But they were the best eight months of my life to date. I had the best fun in that time. Lived in an apartment with a friend of mine, had a shiny black motorcycle, was like a total grown-up. And then I had a massive motorcycle accident on the Sydney Harbour Bridge one night. Come on the way to my night job, I was working in a nightclub on weekends. And on the way there, I had this massive stack, broke my leg really badly. Wow. And I had 14 reconstructive operations to stick me back together. One four. One big, awful accident. 14. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Was anyone else involved? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't just leap off my bike. No, a big gold Mercedes just changed lanes really fast. Didn't, didn't look you. for me. Oh, just fanged it really fast. Wanted to go over the bridge rather than down the tunnel, you know, and that approach yeah, to the tunnel yeah, from the yeah. north side. I was right there. I know and exactly just the took spot. took me out. Oh, yeah. good Lord. And I didn't even see them coming. I didn't even know they'd hit me. I was flying through the air with the lights of North Sydney swirling around 
before I even knew I'd been hit. And then I slid on my stomach with my bike across the Gore Hill Freeway and stopped when I hit the gutter on the other side and my bike slammed with me and the main injury was a really badly broken leg. That's horrendous, but still. But lots of operations. and oh. Goodness me. So that brought things to quite a sudden halt. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And I was only 19. Far out. And life had just got going. Yeah. And then I was checking out the inside of a hospital for a year. You were basically in hospital for a year? I was in and out. Yeah. So there were times that they'd stabilise things and then go, okay, you can go home for mm. six weeks, but... It, yeah. You know, I had serious injuries. Bloody hell. And then back again. I remember there was a six-weeks period of time where I had an operation every Wednesday for six weeks. Oh, my goodness. It sucked so hard. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to lose my leg and they finally said to me, this is our last-ditch effort because you've, you've just got no blood supply to this ankle and you're going to lose your foot. So they said we can try an old-fashioned... We can either try something really radical, so that's on the table. We might do something really radical. We may have to amputate your leg. Uh, or we can try an old tried-and-true technique they've been doing since World War II called cross-leg surgery. So I went into that operation not knowing what was going to happen, and my mum was there to give them permission to do whatever they thought they needed to. And when I woke up in recovery... My mum was there. My mum always appears at either the most wonderful or the most awful situations in my life. My mum always pops up. <laughs> and and I felt down my legs and I only had one leg. And I thought, they've, I can't believe it. I can't believe they've amputated my leg. And mum said, no, no, they haven't. They've done the cross leg. They couldn't do the radical idea. That was They wanted to take the lap muscle out of my back and basically stick all this bits from all over my body in one go, which was never going to work, I don't think. And so they did the cross-leg surgery. So they took the calf off my left calf. So my left leg saved my right leg. They took the left leg off my calf and they grafted it to my right shin, but they left it attached for a month. So, so your a, legs were stitched together? My legs were stitched together, which I always say is not very funny when you're a highly promiscuous 19-year-old. <laughs> Truly? Yeah. My mum was like... <laughs> I'm sure you found ways to work around it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are ways. Yeah, yeah there I'm are sure, ways. I'm sure there are. <laughs> so I was a mermaid for a month. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So you only felt one leg because they were stitched together. They were, yeah, and bandaged all together. Whoa. And then they took all the bandages off and... My, one leg was slightly straight and the other one was, was slightly bent and one was straight. So it was really uncomfortable. I had the sorest hips for a, a, a whole month. And then it was just all open to the air. So it looked like you've, you'd never believe, like this bridge of like a thick stake that yeah. was a bridge across from one leg to the other feeding blood supply and it worked. So after a month I went into theatre, they split the two in half and they literally held their breath. And my right leg stayed pink and I got to keep it. That is absolutely extraordinary. Wild, hey. And I gave a speech just this morning 
to a bunch of uh, disability workers and one came up to me afterwards and he said, I think you might have had similar surgery to me. And he said, do you want a scar competition? And he pulls his scars out and he has almost the same scars as me. And he'd been walking in New Zealand and a boulder had fallen on him, hit him on the head, smashed his leg and that's how he had injured his. And he'd had this whole flap surgery and the same same sort of scars. Wow. So I've never met anyone with the same scars until Ayrton Senna, he's got the same scars as me. Wow. He had the same surgery? Yeah. Wow. Is it Ayrton Senna? Maybe somebody else. Ayrton Senna's not alive anymore. No. Um, a Formula One driver? No, a motorcycle rider. Oh, um, Mick Doohan? Possibly. I think it might be Mick Doohan. Mick <laughs> Doohan's had a lot of surgery. Yeah, I think it might be him. Yeah. One of them has... All this stuff is making me think a lot because I've just got my learners. It's <laughs> making me think a lot about riding my yeah, motorcycle around. Right. Yeah, gotcha. Did you ever get back on a bike? Uh, yeah, lots of times. Um, but I really only ride in countries where motorcycles own the road. Uh-huh. So I wouldn't have a motorcycle here. Yeah. I wouldn't use it as transport here. If I did, I'd use it like as a beach hopper. Yeah. But I wouldn't say go to the other side of the Harbour Bridge or into the city. Or Our roads just aren't – we just don't let motorcycles own the road like places like India and Cambodia and where it's all motorcycles. Nothing but And scooters. the cars just have to kind of move gently yeah. within the motorcycles. Yeah. So it's a, yeah. and it's extraordinary, and because uh, I've often I often see this when I'm on a and I've done it once when I was on a scuba diving trip in a country that has lots of scooters, and it it's like fish. Yeah. They look like fish. Yeah. And it's extraordinary how the systems replicate, even though they're humans piloting them and they're machines. They find the gaps just like schools yeah, and of they're fish. also really easy going. The traffic just they all allow for each other. You don't get road rage in places like India and Cambodia. Everyone's just. Trying to make it all work, you know, work together. Yeah. It's yeah. A super chaotic, but there's an organisation and there's a, a beauty to it and everyone yeah. just goes, that's okay, we're all, I'm just going to nudge right into this intersection, I'm just going to keep nudging and then eventually enough bikes pile up behind me and that we all move together as a clump <laughs> and then we all go together. Yeah. yeah, I didn't ride in Ethiopia though because if you hit a pedestrian in Ethiopia, it's a 15-year jail term. No trial or anything like that. If you're at the wheel and you hit a pedestrian who dies, you go to jail for 15 years. So I never drove in Ethiopia. Gave that a miss. Fair enough, too. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a, that's, a, that's a law you don't want to, Yeah, you don't want to be messing with laws overseas. Yeah. No, that, and they have a um, – there's a drug, a, a leaf called CHAT that everyone chews and it's a hallucinogen. So honestly, if you hit a pedestrian, it's because they're on CHAT and they're off their face. So it's, you, you are taking your life in your own hands a bit. On the road in Ethiopia. I remember that next time <laughs> I'm there. Okay, so you've had this moment. Obviously, there was obviously, I'm guessing, quite a few. You're 19. There would have been quite a few, oh, my goodness, what's life about moments. Yeah. Was there the chorus of angels? Was there the light through the window? Was there, oh, this is what oh, I'm no, going to do? Oh, no, no, I didn't think I was going to die. Only after my accident did I realise how close I came to being killed. It wasn't until probably the next day that I realised just how close I'd come, just because I didn't realise everything that was going on around me. But it was, you know, before everyone had mobile phones Mm -hmm. and a woman drove, saw the whole thing and she pulled up and she stopped people coming down that inside lane and just driving over the top of me. So did you have a moment, um, considering losing your leg is very traumatic for anyone, let alone a 19-year-old who's just gotten started, did you have a moment where you start thinking about, well, 
I've got both legs back now. What am I going to do with them? I don't think I thought about it that hard. I never thought I was going about to die or anything like that. I never faced my mortality. I did have to face this idea of losing my leg, which horrified me. Absol- the thought, I just couldn't even let my mind go towards that as a possibility. And I had the best legs. And I just, oh, it was just too hard to think about. So I didn't think about it. And we just got through it and I got to keep my leg and happy days. After that, it was more just I needed to work. I needed to get on with it. And I couldn't go back to my agency job because it was on a three-storey building and it was such an active job. It was running up and down between departments and I just knew I couldn't do that for a while. It would end up taking seven years before my leg was as stable as it was ever going to be, which is a long recovery time. So I just started freelancing. And a friend actually said to me, stop your whinging, buy a computer and start freelancing. So I freelanced as a designer. And I started doing those chalkboards, you know, that you see really nice chalkboards in pubs and clubs. I started doing those. And then I just built up a little team and then eventually I had a team of four and tidy little turnover and lots of corporate clients. And I did that for 20 years. Extraordinary. So out of uh, adversity, you created a, a business opportunity, something that... I guess so. I just, I had my sick pay sitting there. So I, I bought my first Mac and just went from there. Right. <laughs> Worked it out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how did the charity CEO thing come from that then? Yeah, I am easily distracted and I bore easily. So I'm always looking for some kind of interesting thing to do next. And I saw this amazing Aussie woman. She came on the Oprah show. Her name was Catherine and she was working in Ethiopia. And I loved what she was doing. She was just such a gorgeous lady. And she was curing women with uh, childbirth injuries that can only be cured with surgery. Nearly all of her patients have lost their babies and then they have terrible internal injuries. And she had perfected the, the technique. And she'd been quietly doing that in Ethiopia for 50 years. The technique that can be done in the field. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, yeah, in a hospital. In a hospital, but yeah, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ideally, you prevent these injuries by giving a woman a cesarean section when yeah. a baby gets stuck and won't come out. But these women are stuck in labour for seven, sometimes ten days. Oh, Lord, yeah. Bob. And then the baby does, dies. The baby doesn't survive that. Oh. The baby dies and then basically the skull starts to decompose and that's how it crushes down and she can get it out. And she'll only survive if she can get that baby out. If she can't get that baby out, she'll die of septicemia. And this will just be out in in the countryside, three days' walk from a road, really, really remote. Yes, it's extraordinary. I mean, you know, we are 19 weeks pregnant right now and when you think about what you're describing was everyone's experience until 100 years ago. Everyone, like you walk to that cemetery that is between your place and my place, the amount of graves that are six months, you know, three yeah. months or dialed in childbirth yeah. and, you know, dialed, you know, mother of seven, you have to have seven because only three made it to, you know, yeah. adulthood. Yeah, that's it, right. Un, like in, well, we didn't understand maternity care very well no. at all. Uh, in the last 20 years, the death rate worldwide has halved. That's amazing. So instead of one woman every minute, it's one w- woman every two minutes. When you put it that way, it's still not good enough. No. Uh, and most of that is lack of access 
to good care. So it's not these women in Ethiopia, it's not because they're child brides, it's not because there might be any cultural cutting or female genital mutilation. It has nothing to do with obstructed labour. The fact that they live four days from a hospital and when they get to that hospital, there's no obstetrician. That's the problem. Right. So the the injury we're talking about uh, is fistula, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Which is a, a tear that's either between the colon or the... Um, it's bowel or, or vagina yeah. or bladder yeah. and vagina or the like trifecta of horror, which oh. is just all three, a total mess. And, so even and some women, their, their bladder is completely destroyed. They have no bladder bag left. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, so for the rest of their lives? Yeah, for the rest of their survive. lives, they're incontinent. And if you imagine living in a country town or, you know, like a little village where there's no sanitation or running water, it's just unworkable. Yeah. And the rest of the village doesn't know how to handle someone like that either because they don't want illness coming into their village either. So they they end up being ostracised and they live quite separately and lonely and they've lost their baby and it's it's not... But this is an injury... That, for all intents and purposes, I mean, if everything went really badly wrong, could have happened today here in Sydney, mm. but within an hour, of doctors in there. That's exactly right. So five percent of women worldwide, no matter where they live, no matter how snazzy their obstetrician is, will have an obstructed labour. But in Sydney, they can identify that really fast. So they can see if it's a, pl- a pl- placenta previa, for example, where the placenta is actually covering over and you cannot push that baby out. We can see that in an ultrasound before she even goes into labour and avoid all those injuries. But they're out in a village waiting mm. for labour to start yeah. and they're trapped, trapped so, by their own lack of maternity care. You saw this woman on Oprah and yeah. you were and in the middle of I making just a chalkboard and you're all right. <laughs> I had just had a baby myself. I'd just had my first. And so I think I was just I was just really sensitive to this story about women really suffering in childbirth. And I had this healthy baby and everything had been free and on tap. And, you know, I had a lactation consultant on speed dial. And to think that these women had, were suffering like that just because they live remotely, just really, it was, I just found it really touching. So I hunted her down. I've never done that before with a guest from the Oprah show and I've never done it since. Uh, and I just said, look, I want to I support what you're doing. How do I donate? And I'd been working as a doula or a childbirth support partner because I'm easily distracted and I enjoy doing other things. And so I made my doula fees the same as an operation in Ethiopia. So it just felt great. I was called to a birth, attended a birth, helped them have a fabulous birth and then they paid me and it funded an operation for someone who would never know who we were. In Ethiopia, it was fab. And then I uh, I just picked them up as a pro bono client because I loved the work they were doing and I had the skill set for it. Uh-huh. So I helped them with website and fundraising and the, the things I knew. And then very quickly I was travelling to Ethiopia every year because I'm a photographer. So I would take my camera and do a big shoot each year and I travelled all over Ethiopia on my own and learnt a huge amount on those on those adventures and just loved it, just loved the adventure of it all. Yeah. And then the boss, the elderly obstetrician who was the founder, she asked me to be the CEO of a new charity that would fund her legacy. So by then I'd been running my little ad agency for 20 years and I was just bored. I was bored of doing catalogues for drawers and hinges and boring yeah. stuff. And so I quite happily uh, let the agency wind up and I took the leap into the not-for-profit sector and learnt, learnt that whole bag very, very fast. It's very different to running your own show when you're reporting to a board and everything's got to be super transparent 
and I very, very quickly became a master of the Constitution and the Corporations Act and learnt that side of things and now that's part of what I do is, is in governance which is strange for a creative. I enjoy the governance because if, if, if the governance is really solid, then you can take really fabulous risks and you can do some really cool stuff when the governance is, is in tip-top shape. So yeah. I enjoy that stuff. Do you still work in, in that area? Um, I still consult in that area, yeah. yes, yeah. So I loved that gig. I loved it so much. I loved the travel to Ethiopia. I loved raising money. We raised $7 million in two and a half years. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of dough. It's a lot of dough for women for women, on the other side of the world in a country that most people cannot point to on a map and a condition or a, an injury that a lot of people don't understand and a lot of people don't want to talk about vaginas. So it was, it was a task to really bring it to the fore and, you know, get it on breakfast television mm. so that people were willing to talk about it. It was a huge challenge. Yeah. Yeah, but it was wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> you have written a bunch of books. Well, a bunch, more than me, too. <laughs> um, I have written two books now. Your yes. first book, though, was, was that drawn? It was about, it was a birthing guide for dads. Yeah. Did that come from your work as a doula? Yes, very much so. So, Cheers to Childbirth came out of a workshop that I created called Beer and Bubs. I love alliteration. Everything has alliteration. I think it rhymed too. <laughs> Beer and Bubs, childhood education for men at the pub. It had a canter. Yeah, to it. it does. Yeah. yeah. And I created that because I could see as when I was working as a doula that the dudes had no clue what they were doing and somebody had to tell them in man speak. Yeah. And it made sense to do it at the pub where everyone's a bit more comfortable. Yeah. And we it's just a bit, like, bit like Ricky Bobby and Talladega Nights. I don't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> like I'm, I, need, I feel I need to be important but I don't know what it is yeah, that I should do. I'm afraid exactly. I'm going to say the wrong thing. The old helpless onlooker. Yeah. yeah. And I just made it fast and fun and then they, they knew what their job was. They knew exactly what they needed to do and they knew what not to do. Yeah. Uh, and then I franchised that nationally. I was going to wind it up. I, was, I had too much going on. Yeah. And then someone came to me and said, I'd love to do it in Adelaide. And so we went national. <laughs> love it. Yeah. And then I published the book out of that. So that's still going strong. Beer and Bubs is still going strong all over Australia. And that book keeps selling because people keep breeding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm about to do like My Audrey's about to do. She's done it before, but it's my first, you know. Yeah, right. I will definitely bring you a copy of that book. What's the if you had to just if, if the book never makes it if something happens I, I never if <laughs> okay. Australia Post fails the one thing that you what's remember what's the thing that okay. I need to remember it's the trifecta of hormones okay so I'm kind of squeezing three things into one but right. the trifecta of hormones you've got oxytocin and endorphins oxytocin runs the labour endorphins nuke the pain without those two you're screwed you will not you will not give birth that day without those two hormones absolutely coursing through your partner's bloodstream. The only thing that blocks those two wonder drugs is adrenaline. And the only thing that causes adrenaline is fear, irritation, annoyance. Fear is the big one. So if your partner is afraid, she's not going to be able to dilate and the pain of childbirth is going to be stronger. So it will be your fault if it's longer and harder than it needs to be. So you just have to make the room as cool and calm and comfortable as possible and that might mean not letting your mother-in-law in and that might mean batting some people away and just keeping things absolutely fabulous and calm. Got it. She has been dropping hints. There was a photo of um, the young man on Dancing with the Stars, Jimmy Giggle, 
he is a children's entertainer. That's not his actual surname. Um, but there was a photo of him and his wife who'd just given birth. It was only like a month ago. He's on the show with a two-week-old child. And it's a photo taken from above and Audrey says, look. And in the corner of the frame, there's a platter with crackers and unpasteurized cheese. <laughs> Ready to go. Like the moment the baby's out, I'm into yeah, that yeah. brie. You know? I, I used to make, when I used to visit my doula clients, I'd make them a salad called I'm Not Pregnant Anymore Salad. And it's just got everything in it that you weren't allowed to eat. So smoked salmon and soft cheese and just chuck everything in there. Or just can't wait. <laughs> She's, yeah, yeah, I'm on a strict instructor. It is no fun being pregnant, I have to say. I've, I have done it three times and it sucks. Yeah. I, yeah, I'd rather give birth every day than be pregnant. Wow. That's how much I hated my pregnancies. Yeah. Wow, what's the hate? Just the ter- – I had terrible, terrible morning sickness. Right. I couldn't sit here and do this interview. I was so ill wow. for the whole pregnancy. And they got worse with each one. Oh, boy. Yeah. And what makes you go around again? Uh, I don't know. The second one I had for the first child and the third one I had because I wanted a big family. And then I wanted a fourth and I wrote myself a letter during my third pregnancy for me to read if I was considering having a fourth. It was so bad. (laughs) This heartfelt letter about how torturous pregnancies don't do it to yourself. Just remember, you might be thinking about it, but I'm here to tell you. Yeah, it's bad, bad, bad. (laughs) Don't do it. (laughs) Yeah, I do see every every day I see Audrey get more and more pregnant as is going to happen, and every day I see it's equal parts wonderful and uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, it is a bit. And there's nothing I can do about it except rub it back and... Just get through the time. And try and make And I never think about it now. I look at my gorgeous kids and I never think about how hideous the pregnancy was. Right. You just get through it. It's interesting what you say about the hormones and breaking it down like that and that to get the oxytocin and uh, the endorphins, you know, the group of painkillers that the body's got and that adrenaline is the thing that blocks the release. Yeah. That's a... And that's so that a woman doesn't suddenly give birth when she really should keep the baby inside and run from the saber-toothed tiger or whatever. Uh, But it could just be like her mother-in-law's got clippity cloppity sandals on and has got coffee breath and driving her nuts. It could be simple as that. Nobody that could likes, produce adrenaline. Nobody likes clippity cloppity. <laughs> That's right. Mother-in-law coffee breath sandals. <laughs> yeah. Nobody likes her. My, my mother-in-law is wonderful, so don't worry. And my mum my has passed away, so she has nothing to fear. <laughs> no, my mum won't be anywhere won't near Won't be her. there. No, nah, she won't be there. And if she was, my mum being the doctor that she is, she's like, I'm not coming. <laughs> You'll be right. I'm, I've had four boys. There's no need. Yeah. There's, I have no need to be anywhere near her. She is totally. <laughs> yeah, my mum was great too. She was like, I had four, all natural. You'll be right. Every every person you see was born. You'll be right. <laughs> <laughs> this, yes. Every, well, yes. Every person you see had a successful birth. There is probably many people that we don't see that yeah yeah um, yeah there are and that yeah. yeah and i guess that's one thing that i two percent two percent of babies don't make it even in this modern and that's just something to remember yeah it's only two yeah. percent i remember when my son went for open heart surgery Far out. yeah like the full zipper yeah Whoa. and um how old was he he was six good lord and he he was born with a heart defect. He had an abscess in a tooth and, you know, big swelling up, had to go and have this tooth pulled out. And in the process of getting that pulled out, the doctor said, I've noticed he has really low oxygen saturation levels in his blood, so you need to go and take a look at that. So I Google 
straight away what that is. And the number one reason is leukaemia. So I, my husband and I were freaking out. By the time we got to the doctor the following week, they said, no, no, well, there are, it's definitely not that. And there's a bunch of other things we need to isolate first. And it turned out he had this heart defect. So he just had, he was just born with an extra vein that shot across to the wrong side of his heart. So it's called superior vena cava to left ventricle. So of course, it, the old SPTV. <laughs> Cool. And it uh, it would shoot the blue blood that yeah. he brought down from his head and it would shoot it into the red section of his heart. So yeah. he was always watered down. Yeah. So he got cold really easily. Yeah. He'd peter out in the pool quite quickly. Yeah. And why am I telling you this? When he went um, for his open heart surgery, they said there's a 2% chance he'll die on the table. And that was too much for me. That mm. was a very, that as far as I was concerned, that was a chance that could happen. Mm. And then somebody said to me, remember, it's the same amount. It's the same chance he had of dying the day he was born, that 2% chance. And that actually was quite soothing because I thought, yeah, well, I've had three kids and they keep coming out okay. And he did. He survived. But you do focus on the 2% chance yeah. that he won't. Yeah, that, yeah. It is interesting how we do that as humans, how we yeah. don't go, no, 98% of the yeah, time this works. Fine. 98% of the time this works fine. Now he's 15 and he's got a hairy chest and you can't even see his scar because <laughs> he's like a big man child. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. I yeah. love it. Yeah, it's it, it's, an, it's an extraordinary thing, you know, that we as humans do this. And, you know, I watch Audrey. It, it's very much like I describe it as the new Michael Bay Transformer movies and that this woman that I've known and fallen in love with from pretty much the chin down is totally different. Like from the day we conceived, her body just like and now just becomes this different thing and parts of it move in different places, muscles separate apart to, you know, you know her hips, you know, yeah. hormones that have been dormant for her entire life are suddenly graded in so her ligaments can stretch. And yeah. like, it's just bananas that her body has this dual purpose. That. Yeah, it's, that her it's body, actually, that's its main yeah, purpose. Yeah, its main purpose. Yeah. Well, I guess you're right. And we live long beyond our breeding years. Yeah. But humans are actually only designed to really go hell for leather while they can breed. Yeah. And that's why things like our hair, our hair goes grey, mm. things start to die because we've done our main purpose, which is survival yeah. of the species. Well, our teeth should be gone. I'm in my mid-40s. My teeth should have yeah, rotted out by yeah, now. Right. You yeah. know? And that's, that was, I guess, the thing that kept us, that eventually it was the, the fail-safe. Yeah. Our teeth rot out. We can no longer chew solid food. We yeah, can no, we're, we're just anyway. nutrient deficient. Unless someone's going to chew it and then pass it over, we we just <laughs> yeah, peter life out. Is tough. We peter out and die. Yeah. But we have toothbrushes, so we're superhumans because mm. our teeth still exist. <laughs> it's amazing. You Ooh. know, in Ethiopia, they have a tree that they call nature's Colgate, and it's got fluoride in the tree sap, and Brilliant. they make little like little toothpicks, and they sell them in the markets, and that's what people use to brush their teeth. They're just these little nature's toothpicks. Super duper. Yeah. yeah, cool, hey. I've got to get around it. <laughs> I've, got get, I've got to get over there. Yeah, um, well, when you live in a country where water isn't safe, yeah. brushing your teeth is almost impossible. So that's the next best thing. You just Honestly, let's see. I'll write it every morning. This book right here, this is the book I write in every morning. And um, I write 20 things that I'm grateful for in oh, yeah. every single morning. And every morning I write water. Yeah. I jumped in the shower the other day. And oh, how I, good is a hot shower? I just, I'm just like. Oh, it's just like such this, a luxury. This is just ultimate technology right <laughs> I'm showering been... in desalinated heated clean safe like in the sky this is 
this is space age yeah, what's happening right now. And when I poo and pee, it gets taken away, Banishes. far away from where I eat, <laughs> you know, and to prevent oh, no, disease. Yeah, no. You know, and just those two things alone, mm. just billions of people on this planet do not have access to that. And those, you know, those learnings, you know how we've learnt that our toilet shouldn't be in our kitchen? Yeah. And we've learnt the sanitary reasons for that. Well, there's still people living today that haven't learnt that. And so they do what is the obvious thing and they put their toilet in their kitchen. So all over Cambodia, we were going and putting toilets in and having to undo the toilets that had been put in literally in people's kitchens. So the rule had to be you've got to be 50 steps away from where you cook to where we will put these composting toilets because they didn't know otherwise. We just sort of take these learnings for granted and we know them forever more and our kids learn it through us. But lots of cultures just don't have that yet. Yeah. Just don't have it. You, speaking of kids, and I've got a teenage one, and she's amazing, your your second book is kind of aimed towards girls of her age, isn't it? I don't know about that. It's aimed at anyone who'd like to read it. I don't know if I aimed it specifically at teenage girls. No? No. Oh. Chicks my age, dudes yeah. your age, I yeah. don't know, anyone who can read. Yeah. <laughs> what drove you to write it? Um, I was fired from my beloved job at the Ethiopian charity and the day I was fired, they, was, they called me to a meeting, postponed a trip of mine to the States, called me to a meeting and said I'd be given a graceful exit. And I, it came out of nowhere, out of absolutely nowhere. I was so shocked, horrified. And I remember walking back to my car and in Paddington and I sat in my car and was crying on my steering wheel when my phone rang and it was a number I didn't recognise and it was HarperCollins offering me a book deal. That's how my, my life rolls like that. Bad stuff happens and then like literally in half an hour's time something, will, something totally different will happen. And I said to my publisher, I don't know if you'll want me to write a book because I'm not a CEO anymore. And she said, yes, we do. We Is definitely do. Yeah. yeah, of course it was Catherine Mill. She said, yes, we do. And, and it has taken me four years to finish because I keep taking on other consulting CEO ro- roles yeah. and those are always all-consuming. Yeah. And I I probably really only focused on it properly last year and I probably wasn't really ready to write it in a way that was warm and humorous and kind until last year. When I was writing right after I was fired, I, I I was just spitting bullets and hating it and using the writing as part of my therapy really. A lot of that didn't make it into the book. It's important. <laughs> it's important. I, I, I yeah. tell people, good people ask me about mine a lot. It's like it's, it's really important to get the stuff out. Yeah. You just some, you just have to write it and then your brain feels like, oh, no, we said that. It's yeah, done. We don't I've, need to say I've it now. i said it now. I've and Catherine it. read it and, you know, a couple of other people at HarperCollins read that bit and that's enough for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then and they happens, help me craft it into yeah. something that the reader will really enjoy. Sometimes when I'm doing an award show or something, I'll sit there with the writer and we'll make, Oh, we'll be at the laptop and we'll be writing the show out because people may not realise, but you have to write the whole thing because yeah, people sure. have to go, yes, we're allowing you to say that on our live broadcast. You actually have to write everything and it has to go up a chain because there is a, yeah. you know, there's a gatekeeping around live television. And um, I would sit there and, you know, I don't know, celebrity A who's got this particular kind of haircut or this particular kind of facial expression will come out and I'm like, oh, I can't say that. It's the most horrible thing ever. But then I'm like, I get itchy and itchy and then I type it and my co-writer will look at it and go, 
Yeah, you're never going to be able to say that. No, I'm never going to say that. I'm just writing it. I write it, then my brain yeah. feels like it's done, yeah. and then it's gone. And then so when we're live, it'll never come out of my mouth. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, that's that's a good technique. The really yeah. risky, yeah. risky thing. Gotcha. Trick my brain into thinking that I've done it. Yeah, I um, had to exercise all my demons. I think get it all out, spew yeah. it all out, and then cut bits. And come at it in a more, I guess it was it was probably just more a, a more humorous, a warmer way. Yeah, yeah, because I learned a huge amount. Yeah, and I'm glad I'm not there anymore. And then the next role, which was a CEO role for a charity in Cambodia, I hated every minute of that, and I'm I'm glad that I, I left that role too. So I I learned a lot. Yeah, poster girl for failure. <laughs> well, <laughs> failure is only failure if you don't learn something. Yeah, that's right. So what did yeah. you learn? Oh man, I learned that I'm a really bad ass kisser. I I just can't ask kiss. If someone has done something brilliant, then I will tell them. Then they should be told. But if I have to ask kiss for the sake of getting a result out of someone, I feel really dirty. And it doesn't feel truthful to me. It doesn't feel honest. And so as a CEO, I focused on my main, my KPIs and my main targets and I smashed them to pieces. But I didn't kiss the right asses to keep carrying me along. And I didn't realise that the charity sector is so unbelievably ego-driven that I should have been taking these egos along for the ride. And I also didn't re- – I honestly didn't predict how wildly successful – that project was going to be and raising so much money in such a short period of time I went from nobody I went from some pink-haired photographer to the single largest stakeholder in the hospital in under six months and I didn't realize that this would make a whole lot of people look bad and it was never my intention no way but I realized that I didn't kiss the right asses but it probably took me three years to work that out yeah there were some asses I really should have kissed so that my head didn't bob up too high above the other egos. Can you see a way that should another situation arise, you would be able to allow those egos to feel like they're involved and still keep your heart? <laughs> yeah, somehow walk both lines. Yeah. It was tricky because my I didn't have my board on board with that. So I was I was pushed up high because we were really succeeding but when it came to it it was so easy to throw me under the bus right yeah and that's that is the life of a ceo yeah you you take the buck stops with you and you're the sacrifice when things go wrong that's exactly it yeah the board just takes a neat step backwards as you face plant yeah yeah but that that's that's the gig yeah that is the gig that's that's yeah and it was my first gig too so i did learn a lot uh, I'm not sure how much I would do differently, though. I grew that charity so nice and fast and gave the funding that it needed to really finish the work that was being done there. And now the whole backlog of fistula work in Ethiopia is is done. So it's no backlog cases to do. And because Catherine was so famous through the Oprah show, a lot of other fistula surgeons came to Ethiopia. So there's really good coverage in Ethiopia now and preventative caesareans and that sort of stuff. So I feel like that was my life's work was this whop load of funds that really, really pushed that target along. Yeah. And I did for Catherine what I said I would do, which was to fund her legacy. So she's 95 now. She's still kicking along, but only just. So she saw her her, her work finish, which is what I set out to do. And I'm really proud of that. That's got to feel good. Yeah. 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 She's a pretty special lady. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So, you are clearly someone who's not afraid to go out and start something new. Yeah, clearly- actually, I'm. It's it's not that I'm not afraid. It's that I would actually prefer to. Yeah. I prefer to create something new than to fix something that's busted mm-hmm. it's actually much cleaner and neater to create a startup from scratch you can do it in under five grand S- create a startup from scratch with a nice crm and a website and then create whatever it is you're creating and you can do that all in a really streamlined way i'd rather do that than fix something broken which is what i did with the the cambodian charity long established had been going for 24 years but everything was still very manual and analog and I needed to streamline that business, make everything, mm-hmm. donations all nice and automated. And, you know, when someone made a donation, they were transferring, say, 200 bucks to Cambodia. And then someone would go out and buy a water pump. And then they would go to a village and install it. And then they would put a plaque on it. And then they would take a photo of it. And then it would work its way back through the chain all the way back to my office. And then that would be sent to the donor. And it was just not the right way to run community development. So it just needed streamlining. Yeah. Yeah. So if people are listening and they are kind of inspired by you and, and the work that you've done, where, where do they even begin? What do they even do? How okay. do they even get their headspace well, around the it? the first thing to do is actually work out if there's a charity doing exactly what you want to do. Go find them and fund them. So you don't need to set up a whole new thing and have a whole charitable entity and a constitution and, and a board of directors. And I tell you what, if you love Uh, a particular cause, watch how fast you stop loving it when you have to attend annual general meetings and you've got to have a a, a proper board with good governance. It suddenly becomes an admin drag. So find a charity that's doing exactly what you're doing and fund them, raise funds for them and use their DGR status. If there isn't, if that doesn't exist and you really do want to start your own thing, you just... Australia's made it nice and easy and very clean and easy to do and you just do it through the ACNC, the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission. So you register there and then they give you all. When I did it, I had to just work it out. But uh, now you just do it all through the ACNC and they give you checklists and off you go and then you, you register your charity and then off you go. What's the most important thing though when you're, when you're starting a charity, when you're asking people for money? What do you think? You, know, you need a website and a bank account and you need that juicy DGR status because Australians go not DGR status, deductible gift recipient status. Donations over $2 or tax deductible? Aussies go nuts for a tax deduction. I mean, Aussies are incredibly generous. Only, and let me get this right, 4%, this is going to blow your mind, 4% of charitable giving in Australia comes through corporates. 
only 4%. 14% comes through foundations and trusts. And the rest just comes from generous Aussies, just people yeah. who just donate. So corporate, people think corporate gives and it, corporate do give enormous amounts to charity, but it's actually only a small percentage nationally. So it's just generous Aussies. Yeah. And how much, how important is it though when it comes to, you know, say someone's given 20 bucks, they've clicked the website, they've gone click, 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 and then click 20 bucks, put their credit card in, blah, blah, blah. Why is it important to care for that person or make them feel they're cared for? Yeah. Um, it, it's really important to make them feel part of your community. But you have to also balance their investment in that community with the time you can spend making them feel part of it. Yeah. So after after a year, that 20 bucks is has definitely been and gone. And all they can be is seeing your social media and on your email newsletter because that's not costing you anything more. So you just have to be careful. We, I was very careful about just how much we fell at the feet of donors, depending on how much um, that they really donated to the work. Yeah. But those, you know, little bits of 20 bucks from millions of people make a huge difference. Yeah. I just encourage people, don't give 20 bucks to 20 charities. Just give one charity a whole stack of money and really have some, have some clout and have some impact with your donation instead of a little bit to a lot because uh, that's all receipts that have to go out to people and just focus on one charity and really support them. Right. Yeah. And then so like whenever you, I don't know, have a bake sale or run a 5K or, or whatever, you, that's... Just focus on that one charity that really means a lot to you and then you'll, you'll maximise your impact rather than divvying it up. Right, and yeah. you, that, and that for you, that's the the way you can maximise. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And then you're you're just using less admin of a whole bunch of different organisations. Yeah. I often see that there'll be an event, and they'll say our charity partners are, and they'll list five charities. And I always say, don't do that. Just pick one, pick one, and love them to bits. And then you might, instead of giving them five grand each, you give twenty five grand, and suddenly you become what's called a major donor. When you're over, say twenty grand, you're considered a major donor, and that means you have some say in that organisation. Right. Get and involved. Right. Yeah. That- Read the annual report. Oh, right. Mm. Those things. Yeah. <laughs> Big shrink wrap thing that goes in the recycling. <laughs> yeah, I, I do do that. Do you still do doula work? No, I don't. So Ethiopia destroyed my doula career because I went on a particularly harrowing trip to Ethiopia and went to some of the regional hospitals and we visited a maternity. So our fistula clinics were right next to a maternity, government maternity hospital. And we just popped in there and during the night five babies were born and by the morning four were dead. And I could hear the surviving baby coughing in that ward And the little babies were all lined up together. And I've never forgotten that. And then I came back and on the front page of the Herald was a coronial inquest into the death of a woman during childbirth, which is front page news in Australia. When something like that happens, she got an infection where her epidural went in and she went home and died. And that, you know, it's front page news here. And after seeing what I had seen, I then attended a birth and the couple were snippy with their midwife because she wasn't fast enough coming back to them. And so just coming from one context to the other, I just thought, I can't do this in this context anymore. I can't unsee what I've seen. And these gracious women who have been through so much and they do it with such gratitude and grace. And then to come into the Aussie context, which is their context, and that's where they should be. But 
I just couldn't support face-to-face anymore. And so I just built a huge online directory. I built the first online directory of doulas in Australia because I thought I know how to do that so I'll help connect other people to doulas. I just won't be the doula um, in the birth suite. And my my then husband was very pleased because <laughs> he was sick of me attending births. Right. Because you never knew whether you'd be gone for four hours or four days. Oh. And, you know, we had three little kids and so he, he was pretty he was pretty happy <laughs> when I hung up my doula bag after five years. So, but you, if you had to guess, what you saw, 100 births, 200 births? Not that many, less than 100 less than, in but five still, years. That's more than I've ever seen. It's a fair few births. I've only yeah. ever seen them on YouTube or yeah. at a very grainy, weird 16 millimeter film they showed us in high school. <laughs> yeah. And it lasted about four seconds. I remember one, one time on YouTube with someone in the front seat of a car. Um, I remember when I built when I built the website for Beer and Bubs. I did some keyword research and discovered that one of the top phrases, search phrases, is childbirth videos. And so I built a whole section of that website that was the best videos to watch because it was bringing in the traffic because right. people are looking for childbirth videos. Yeah. There you go. I'm and um, morning sickness remedies. Those yeah. are the other, the other, the other thing. The, that, the other big one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've known me for one hour and 18 minutes. <laughs> You reckon I'll be all right? You'll be fine. Just just don't make her angry. Oh, I could make, make her angry her. just sitting here. You'll be fine. I get a look on my face and she goes, what's wrong? Because <laughs> I can't hide. I'm, I'm, it's what makes me good at my job <laughs> is that I'm very, my facial muscles, my micro expressions tell what's going on in my yeah, brain okay. very, very She'll easily. She'll have her eyes shut. She won't be paying too much attention to you. <laughs> yeah. She'll be in the whole zone. And I will drop in a, pop, a copy. Of I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm, like, I'm like wondering, like, did you have any experience with women who had, you know, kids from previous relationships? Uh, Attending the birth? Yeah, anything like that? Yeah, um, I didn't at the birth I attended, but it often happens. Yeah. Often happens, yeah. And honestly, if I kept having babies, my, my kids came to the births of their siblings wow. when they were only two and a half, but that was a bit special. She was born in the middle of a party. There were like 100 people in my house when she was born. And then when my youngest was born, the older two were there. So that's an, it's an awesome thing to do. Then there's no surprises about where the baby came from. It's pretty obvious where it came from. Well, she's 15 and taller than me. Yeah, right. So I think she's got a fairly, you know, yeah. she knows what's up. I would say it would be an awesome experience for her, but only if it's a supportive and awesome experience for your partner. Yeah. So if your partner feels like she's looking after her, that's not ideal. She's just got to look after her. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering what around there, we around what we do around the birth, I definitely want her to be involved yeah. as, as some, in some way. Well, get her to read my book as well because it's not only for men, it's yeah. for any support partner. I really appreciate that. Yeah. It's got, I've got so much to learn and 22 weeks to learn it. Oh, yeah, plenty of time. I interviewed 15 high-profile Australian men, so their birth story's in there because yeah. no one asks dudes what their birth story was. Yeah. And it was amazing how they wanted to talk about it. I remember Danny Green crying on the phone about the birth of his his child. Yeah, yeah. Second. He's, oh, there's a bit of a bit of a misconception around boxes. That boxes that are, are tough. Same nuts. with bikies. Bikies ah, look tough, but they're anyone absolute that, softies. Anyone that has faced true humility in the ring. Yeah, right. They know what it is to not be the most powerful. They know what it is yeah, to have right. everything about you. Uh, Joe yeah, Williams is a great example. Boxers, jiu-jitsu guys, people get this idea that they're, you know, 
tough heads and you know always really aggressive Thugs. and stuff no yeah, way not, man yeah. if you've really been taken to school in the ring like you know what it is to mm. be you're not the most powerful person in the room and you know what it is to be humble before something bigger than you mm. and so that you know that kind of opens up this chasm of uh, you know questioning your own self and all this kind of stuff so yeah, right. and plus Danny's a lovely Danny, yeah, Danny's a, Danny's a lovely bloke an absolute delight he's a he's yeah. a really lovely bloke um, yeah. I'm super grateful you came over thank you so much thanks for having me bloody great I hope everyone reads my second book oh I'm, <laughs> like why wouldn't they that's right I'm gonna plug the shit out of it it's gonna <laughs> be awesome it's gonna be awesome yeah. um so yeah can i take your photo absolutely oh, i'll insist on it great <laughs> well i hope you make all the right noises when i whip out the camera okay all right then That was Lucy Bloom. You can find out more about Lucy Bloom at thelucybloom.com. She's also on Twitter and Instagram, the Lucy Bloom. Massive thanks to Rachel Barrett, who made this entire week happen. You didn't, All you know is the podcasts that I put out this week, but let me tell you, it was a big week for everyone on the team, and uh, Rachel was an absolute champ this week. Um, Andy Ma, my audio producer who tirelessly worked super hard on this episode to make sure it sounded great. And Mike Mills, also known as Toe Hider, who makes all the musical bits that you hear here. Here? Here. Here? Here. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, I've got to go walk the dogs and um, I've got to go pick up a thing from Gumtree. <laughs> God, mate, we're, we're filling the baby room full of stuff. Gumtree is my friend right now. If you're from, not from Australia, Gumtree is kind of like eBay, but you know, but you just kind of you can give things away for free and pick things up for free. It helps you not put stuff in landfill. It's really good. Anyway, have a cracking week. I'll talk to you on Friday. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.